What's up, gang? Thanks for listening to the Undiplomatic Podcast, the show with undiplomatic takes about the foreign policy scene. I'm your host, Van Jackson. And after a long delay, we've got the crew, Hunter Marsden. Hunter Yo. Marsden. <laughs> Kiara Mitchell. <laughs> Hello. Gabby Magnuson. Hello. And Jake Dello. Sup. So I might be a little rusty because it's been some weeks now. But there are two quick hits that are like interrelated news items. They're entwined. You'll see. One is that uh, in The Guardian, there was this uh, great op-ed throwing shade at Prime Minister of Australia, Scott Morrison, and the uh, Secretary of Defense, Peter Dutton, or Minister of Defense. And these guys are like right-wing demagogues, but in the Australian context where such demagoguery is like a little more muted and a little less anchored in conspiracy theories and like mass violence and insurrection and that kind of thing. But it's of the same um, spirit, of course, and because reactionary forces are reactionary forces. So these guys have been puffing about with that. What kind of fucking frick? I've been in the Antipodes too long. These guys have... They've <laughs> <laughs> been fucking about now, they've been fucking about. These guys have been using uh, China fear-mongering and red-baiting about the China threat as a political wedge. And the irony of this is that it's China's national security in general, historically, is kind of bipartisan in Australia, and there's not meaningful differences. There aren't systematic differences in how the two major parties treat China, right? And so to be like demagoguing on China and to be trying to play that card, recognizing the risks of like stoking, you know, ethnic hatreds and fear mongering and the way you like consolidate national security powers on the back of it all. And it's all based on accusing foreign interference or like a Chinese spy in their midst without actually like fronting up about what they're talking about. These guys are are operating off of a playbook, and I saw some Australian scholars like Ian Hall talk about this too. They're importing the kind of talking points that the Republican Senate was using in 2020 in their senatorial campaign committee guidance uh, that Trump used, that like some of the Fox News people use. It's this shared ethos about villainizing China to score political partisan points, like to further the consolidation of domestic power for the right. And it's just happening in the Australian context with the Australian local flavor. But it's precisely what's happening. And like even a lot of like center right kind of foreign policy commentators in Australia are like, what the fuck is this? Like, this is horseshit. And it's a little too Trumpian for our taste, right? Like, People are reacting against that, which is, uh, I suppose, heartening on some level. But that's one news item. Uh, And then I'll break into the second one. But I'll pause for any, like, thoughts or commentary before I go to the second one. To echo your thoughts, it's a slippery slope. And it definitely follows a bit of the American political playbook, uh, the partisan debate over China and, you know, even Russia before that, who, who... the enemy prefers domestically. And, you know, some of this stems from the whole accusation of a Manchurian candidate stems from a report by Australia's spy agency about foreign interference attempts on the Labour Party. Uh, So the Liberals have, the Liberal being the Conservative Party here in Australia, have been pointing their fingers to say, look, 
it's the Labour Party that China prefers, Beijing is backing. But if you look at the original report, the intelligence report says exactly that the foreign interference uh, attempt failed. So they, didn't, they clearly didn't find much ground to work with labor candidates. And, you know, another uh, anecdote on this, there, there's a, an account here uh, that's it's sort of like the onion of Australia. It's called Batuta Advocate. Uh, I love this post they had uh, pointing out that the same party that leased a, a strategic port in Darwin to the Chinese with links to the People's Liberation Army <laughs> is now accusing uh, the opposition of being pro-China or being in China's pocket. You know, so to, to your point of bipartisanship, uh, it's not really that labor has historically been pro-China and, and liberals um, a lot more hawkish. It's it's purely the election game, and it's a it's a dangerous game to play. Yeah, and like the head of ASIO, the intelligence, Australian intelligence, he was like this, the the character, the tenor of Australia's China debate and this kind of shit is playing right into China's hands. If you're worried about foreign interference, foreign interference only works in societies where there are these deep cleavages of distrust within society, across partisan lines, cleaving society off from its political institutions. Losing that, that trust or good faith or common commonality is what creates space for foreign influence to even matter, to like take hold and spread, right? And so the head of ASIO is like, these guys are fucking nutters. Like this is not how, if your goal is to combat Chinese influence, the last thing you wanna do is create an environment of like splittist rhetoric and partisan um, red baiting. Like that's the worst thing to do. With the Australian debate, it's important to recognize that it's coming at the backdrop of an Australian election. Mm. Um, and that that comes with its own local flavor because the Australian government's essentially incredibly, I don't know if Hunter can attest to this, but they're incredibly corrupt and you know huge people at the higher ups are leaving as we speak because they're finally getting caught out on all this local government stuff yeah there was even toward the end of the piece the the woman who wrote the op-ed i'm blanking on her name she gestured at the motivation for this which is obviously the mm. election um like you say jake she, she wouldn't accuse them of red baiting for the sake of electoral points but she made it clear that it's not not that. So, because I guess yeah. I guess formal accusations for Australia might be like a bit on the nose, but yeah, that seems to be a reasonable analysis of the situation, I guess. And I'm not. I'm definitely not being inflammatory when I say they're corrupt. Um, I think it was the deputy premier and premier of New South Wales. I think it was New South Wales. Glasbury. Yeah, Wales. New South Wales. Yeah, stood down purely because of internal corruption. And using the police to go against political enemies. That was the deputy premier, I think, as opposed to the premier. But that's still the sort of stuff we're talking about, which is exactly the sort of stuff that people have a problem with China for doing. That's what makes it so ironic. I know for me anyway, you know? Yeah. Um, this this ties in really closely, even though it's not about China, to the uh, second quick hit, which is uh, this piece in Newsroom, by a, it's a New Zealand uh, journalist website, by this guy named Mark Dalder, a pretty good uh, political reporter. And the, the title of the piece is called Splintered Realities, How the New Zealand Convoy Lost Its Way, Got Hijacked by the Far Right Fringe. But what he's reporting on, this is like a 
over a week old now, but um, he's reporting on these fucking Canadian trucker protests happening in Wellington, New Zealand, right? So global transnational well, movement, global far right. How many times have we said global far right, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so we're not exempt in New Zealand. And actually, we seem to have been, we seem to be getting it the worst in the world right now, in fact. Um, Canada is getting more attention, but it's because like so much New Zealand um, news is choosing not to focus on this. It's like 10% of coverage. But what's happening is these anti-vax trucker protests started in New Zealand's capital in Wellington. It's it's in a prominent area. It's not like off to the side in some unused lot. It's like right next to the parliament. Um, very high traffic kind of business districty area. And part of it is squatting on what's called the Pipitea campus for Victoria University of Wellington, my university, most of our, except for Hunter, most of our universities at some point. And uh, this is like where the fucking law school is and the business school, right? And it's the downtown campus. It's shut down because of these protest fucks. And like, it's a initially it was a transpartisan mix of anti-vaxxers, right? So it's like wayward people without or who are like under the illusion of some conspiracy theory or whatever. But it was also mixed in with that some like pretty noxious far right elements in New Zealand, like local grown. But they started using um, like Trump 2020 MAGA type rhetoric, including like actual like Trump signs and banners and stuff. And very quickly, the far right kind of took over this this group and the New Zealand police have just kind of shit the bed like they, they're not doing a fucking thing about this. Um, and yes, the, it's fucked. It's the result fucked. is that it's still going on right now. Weeks later, it's getting bigger. They're emboldened. It's escalating. They're throwing feces at cops. Several cops have been injured. They're harassing people, especially women that are passers-by. COVID is spreading in this group. Sexual assaults are happening in this group. And the police are not doing fuck all about it. They shut down the Victoria University of Wellington campus. They spray-painted with impunity the parliament, the beehive in New Zealand. And it's getting bigger. It's getting worse. As we record this, the police have no plan to fucking do anything except build like concrete barriers to try and like limit how much more it expands. It's the fucking craziest shit in the world. So I don't know what thoughts you have. I'm sorry. I'm I'm, uh, sort of the least qualified to speak to this at all. Uh, Just a question though. Do you you think, or do you get a sense that um, Adern is avoiding a crackdown on this uh, situation because of the way Canada's handled it. And Trudeau has been <clears throat> sort of labeled as the big government, um, you know, enemy of the people uh, it, because he took a tough stance on the Canadian truck driving protesters. So it seems like, cause this was happening in, this is happening in, in parallel. It's not like, I think the Canadian truck protest started like one or two days earlier. Yeah. So like, it, but ours is still go, not just ongoing, but it's worse. Um, than it's ever been. And Canada's has kind of reached a ceiling and is getting rolled back in certain areas, like on the Canada-Michigan uh, border and that kind of thing. So, like, I, I'm sure she's paying attention to Trudeau, but, like, my understanding is that she's 100% full-time on just COVID micromanagement, 
kind of bullshit that a prime minister shouldn't be spending her time on. But it's like the pandemic is a big deal. And there's a lot of like institutional momentum behind treating that as like the national security crisis. So that's where her all her time is. And she's deferred this to the police. Like she has not she hasn't weighed in on this in any meaningful way at all. And their national, the national security group in New Zealand met to take the issue, hadn't decided shit. There isn't really a national security system mm. in New Zealand. I mean, so like they're just woefully, the New Zealand police, like I actually would give them um, high marks normally compared to U S police, but that's a pretty fucking low bar. Um, for one thing, and the, they're like they're like they're not militarized and like actively killing people on the street the way American police do, but it's still the fucking police, you know. Like that's still not your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man, and they are woefully undermanned. Like they are not they they don't have a force structure. I don't know what the police equivalent of in the military, we talk about like the capacity and capability of the military. We call it force yeah. structure. The police don't have the force structure or the man manpower, I guess is what you'd call it to deal with large it's scale problems. No. Yeah. No, they don't. And so by not doing shit and not having enough people to actually like wrangle in the protesters, they're, they're allowing these far right mob people to get emboldened, which is what's making the situation worse. And they're not going to stop on their own. They're going to stop by force. That is the nature of these fucking far right people. So like this is going to become like a genuine national security crisis problem for New Zealand because it's being allowed to fester and metastasize. And it's going to, it's I, my fear really is that it's going to end labor as we know it. The center left, like the center left so. in America is totally fucked. And I'm sure Jake would love to see labor go down. But what's going to come in its place is not Marxist yeah. utopia or the Greens. It's going to be it's fuck well. some Luxon fucking well. right wing <laughs> fucking demagogues who are already <laughs> exploiting this to their advantage while delivering no solutions, which is what the right wingers fucking do. Winston Peters went to meet with the protesters in the camp oh, that he's fucker. capitalizing on that this. motherfucker winston peters motherfucker. for those who don't know winston peters he was the, you might remember his name as the foreign minister of new zealand but he's the head of uh, new zealand first which is kind of like new zealand's maga political party um way more genteel than like you know the america first sentiments in the u.s but he pulls from trump talking points like he plays this like far-right populist role sometimes um and it's a little disturbing part of partly one of the reasons it disturbs me is because he's actually maori so like he he can connect well, to he yeah cult he is right and I, I know this is i know this is a big distinction we have to make and i know it might sound a bit racist to people that don't understand New Zealand, but he is not culturally Maori. Oh, That's really? A big Can you explain that culturally, in fifteen seconds? He he won't he wouldn't identify with the cultural markers that someone that identifies as Maori would. He would identify more with the British side. He acts like a white like Pakeha guy, right? He 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 represents the British side of the New Zealand story. Yeah. That's New Zealand first in a nutshell. 
like a like a black person who supports white supremacy kind yeah. of problem. Moralist. Yeah, moralist. Yeah. Moralist. Yeah, it's troubling. And so he's capitalizing on this already. National, which is the conservative party's capitalizing on this. Again, not to deliver any kind of solutions because they don't it's it is in their nature to not have solutions to these kinds of things, but to take advantage of them politically because they're the kinds of problems that the left is supposed to be addressing by like representing workers, but they don't because they're fucking sold out and they're apparently obsessed with like, you know, crises. So you have to let it become a crisis before you actually do something about it. So I don't know. Australia, though, you, Tucker, not what's your name? Fucking Hunter. <laughs> Call me Trucker. <laughs> trucker, trucker Marsden. He, you were saying before we started recording that, um, they had a flash in the pan version of these protests in Canberra, but they kind of like scuttled, scuttled on quickly. Yeah, so I, I mostly stayed away from Parliament, um, you know, and, and avoided it on, on bike rides and things like that. But essentially what we had here was a group of anti-vaxxers from, uh, I assume, sort of the, uh, I don't know, 100 kilometer vicinity of Canberra, um, probably probably not from across the country exactly, but uh, converging on, on the capital, Canberra, to protest in front of Parliament against vaccine mandates and carrying signs similar to what you've seen in Wellington, pro-Trump flags and things like that, and, you know, personal liberties and freedoms. And at some point they were moved uh, from wherever they were squatting in front of parliament to a campgrounds at which they also weren't registered, but were occupying in droves. I, I drove by a couple times seeing them at this campsite and, uh, you know, no, no social distancing or anything like that, of course. But, you know, at some point, Scott Morrison, the prime minister essentially said, look, we understand you have legitimate grievances. We're a democracy. You're, you're allowed to protest, but like, let's move on at some point, you know? And eventually after multiple days of protesting in front of parliament, they did move them on. And, uh, you know, there were, there was a little bit of disruption. They, uh, apparently canceled some book fair to raise money for suicide suicide prevention, which was a shame. Uh, and they, there might have been one assault charge, I think. Um, but on the whole, you know, not to, not to really excuse this, but it seems like it was dealt with fairly civilly and the crowd did disperse and move on eventually. Uh, whether or not the message was, was delivered, um, you know, remains to be seen, I guess. But uh, life goes on in Canberra, and you know, fortunately, these people don't have guns. Uh, much different than what's going on in, in America. So, you know, not like a January sixth sort of mob. Just you know, peaceful protesters um, who were successfully relocated, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, what? So I, I'm not tracking the Australian version of this at all. One thing that's possible is like one, or one thing I know about Australia that I've come to learn recently is that they have a national security state that is is not so different from the US and like per capita the size of their national security state may actually be bigger than America's national security state so like really? yeah it's pretty it's pretty intense that that would translate to having Canberra would have not have the labor shortage problem or the manpower problem that like New Zealand police would have like i could see Canberra being capable of moving protests right. whereas New Zealand doesn't really have the capacity but I don't know. I think like they did a good job of getting information out too. And, you know, anytime I drove by parliament, there were squad cars um, with roadblocks. So they, they were prepared, uh, yeah. certainly. And I, I yeah. think they were organized ahead of time rather than what it sounds like in Wellington is, is a situation that's sort of spiraling and, and never had adequate preparation. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's one, one interesting thing just before we, we stop is um, 
I've, I read something interesting. I think it was CNN that reported it, that New Zealand and Australia have the highest per capita number of QAnon supporters outside of the United States. Uh, I believe and, that. Yeah. That's and right. I think it's really, it's true. It's, it's disturbing. And a lot of the people don't know that it's QAnon they're believing in, but it is. And I think as soon as the Australian police saw what was happening here, preparations would be made for the same over there. Just the same as if we saw it was happening there, the same preparations will be made for here. Because in the New Zealand, Australia Mm -hmm. consciousness, as soon as we see it there, the possibility of it begins to form in our minds. Yeah. So I think it was, yeah. Yeah. The other point I just put in the chat, you know, is just to say Canberra is basically a sprawling suburb and Parliament is on a hill yeah. in a sort of relatively remote suburban area. Um, it's uh, not like downtown Wellington, so it's probably a lot more logistically simpler to uh, deal with protesters. Yeah, interesting. And, um, <laughs> saying that uh, our New Zealand Parliament is at the bottom of a big hill called the Terrace, and um, we always had had the saying, shit rolls downhill. Yeah. And it ends yeah. <laughs> So for the segment, we are calling true or false at the moment because we still, well, I mean, IR people aren't exactly the most creative, are we? Yeah. We're more analytical than creative, some would say. So let's see what one's true and what two are false. Headline one. South Koreans overwhelmingly do not want nuclear weapons to confront China and North Korea, poll finds. Second headline, following successful peace talks by NATO representatives, Russia removes all its military hardware from the Ukrainian border. And headline three, Prince Charles told to prepare for coronation following the Queen of England signaling she is willing to step down. So what one out of those three do you believe are true, Van? Oh, only one is true. Only one is true. Okay. Um, this one's a little bit harder than the other ones. This one's a little bit less memey, so you might actually get this one wrong. Uh, I think I just saw that there was polling that South Koreans in a majority do want nukes um, <laughs> as a hedge against China and North Korea or whatever their rationale is. The The bottom line is they want nukes. <laughs> so I think that one is probably false. I'm going to say the uh, Prince Charles coronation question is true. Unfortunately, yes, it is. Um, <laughs> Prince Charles, yeah, unfortunately, he could be the next monarch. That cold fish looking thing could be the next king of England. And um, Russia has not removed any of its military hardware, despite NATO representatives pleading them to. Yeah. And um, turns out South Korea actually do want nuclear weapons. Unfortunately, Jake. Prince Charles will be king of England someday. It's oh not good, it's well. You know, I was hoping to catch Van out with a question to Jake, because uh, I, I literally just changed one word to that polling one, but of course you did see it, Van. So, oh, <laughs> I love the poll, that polling question for me. Yeah, so yeah. Like, yeah. this is the weird thing. I, I Actually, I had intended to talk about this, except we have so much shit going on in Australia and New Zealand to get into quick hits, but the South Korean nuke thing, Sorry about it. Yeah. In my experience with South Korean conservative elites, they want nukes. And like the conventional U.S. policymaker way to think about that is like, okay, to make them not want nukes, 
we need to do reassurance stuff to reassure them of our commitment to their defense, commitment to deter North Korea or even China. Um, and by reassuring them, they will not want nukes anymore. That's how Washington thinks. How do you reassure them? Well, you fly nuclear-capable bombers into <laughs> South Korea. You extend, You like invest more in your defense posture. You help South Korea acquire longer-range missiles, and you work on them. Work with them to develop doctrine and concepts for things like the kill chain to assassinate Kim Jong Un, and like that. That's how we supposedly show our willingness to reassure them. And that reassurance is supposed to make them not want nukes. But for one thing, in my experience with conservatives, it doesn't matter how much reassurance we give them. They want the nukes anyway. And that poll showing that like South Koreans kind of across partisanship, they want nukes. That's not attached to concerns about like American credibility. The credibility arguments about American staying power in the region and that kind of stuff, they they parrot that stuff back to us because they know it's the kind of rhetoric that we respond to. But like their their desire for nukes is much deeper and much more obviously about hedging against an uncertain future um, and knowing that their named enemy, North Korea, has nukes and will never give them up. It's an unfortunate situation, but it's like very kind of like predictable given the circumstances that South Korea finds itself in. Isn't it like, isn't it just some liberal fantasy really that like we would expect a country that's on the front line of two nuclear powers to say no to nuclear weapons in service of some greater world peace. Yes, it is. A like, is that really naive <laughs> yes. of us it's... to be like, no, why, why, why do you want nukes? Like, it's not like you don't like no. bearing down your neck with them. You're turned paternalistic, but like, no, you don't want nukes. Trust me. <laughs> No, yeah, you don't. Yeah. No, you want a world without nukes, right? <laughs> so like, well, no shit, dude. We all fucking do, but like, <laughs> only one of us is facing down North Korea directly. So exactly. fuck. Yeah. Time for sale of Twitter, where we curate the best and worst of Twitter, so that you don't have to. All right, for stay off Twitter this week, I've got three quick ones. Uh, the first is from Graham Webster. He is a research scholar at uh, Stanford's Freeman Spogli Institute. He's an editor of something called DigiChina. And he seems like a nice guy. He, he read this story in the New York Times from um, Edward Wong. It was about the Sino-Russian bromance or whatever that's happening, like the... The, the two quote unquote bad guy, great powers getting together be, uh, because of like American antagonisms or something. And so the news story about it was like pretty straightforward about what's happening. But uh, Graham Webster's tweet was that as I read this story on U.S. and European alarm at a Chinese shift to greater support for Russian aggression, I, I wonder how China's calculus might differ if the U.S. had not for four years led its foreign policy with fuck China and let Putin be Putin. And he's he's exactly. he's pointing to the Trump years as like this crucial fucking breakdown in our foreign policy. It's a very good point. And even more than the let Putin be Putin, it's really the fact that since 2015 or so, we've had a fuck China policy. 
And so, like, what do you think is going to happen, man? You think they're going to fucking work with us on shit like this? So, seems like a profoundly good point. And they're not working with Russia either, though, because they've they the PRC has come out and said very clearly that they don't support Russia's claims in Ukraine at all. Yeah. Like, they've supported Ukraine's sovereignty, which is ironic considering what's on their border. But they've essentially claimed that Russia is not allowed to Taiwan Ukraine. Yeah. They've said it. No, I mean, so, like, there's two things going on here. One is that it's only really the Uber hawks who are trying to tie Ukraine and Taiwan together and, like, trying to make that commonality oversimplified argument. And the fear is that as we ratchet up sanctions on Russia, Russia will simply divert its own resources, particularly like oil and gas, to China. Like, that China will help Russia circumvent sanctions or blow off sanctions the same way it helps North Korea do so historically. And that's a re- that's a reasonable fear. And that's where Graham Webster's thing is like, yeah, we fucking made this bed. Now we have to sleep in it. But it's important to recognize that like China has not gone there yet. They haven't. China is not allies with Russia or whatever at this point. And so it's TBD. But like we have to be prepared for that eventuality because that's the, that's the world we're making, you know. Second tweet from a dude named Jake Grumbach. I don't know anything about him, um, but he says, he says a lot of Joe Rogan types, including Joe Rogan, think that Obama was the best president of their lifetimes. In other words, being a cool dude wins the Rogan demographic, straight dudes 18 to 30. <laughs> In other words, <laughs> campaigns should focus on being a cool dude. Serious party mismanagement when the party nominates lames instead of cool bros. <laughs> There's a point to that. Okay, it really thanks. is a point to that. This is true. I mean, like, it for the demo, for straight dudes, 18, I'd say 18 to 40, actually, since that would capture me. But I don't agree with this, obviously, right? But it's the fact that this demo thinks this way, it's about cool bros. It's only, like, you got to be a cool bro that's really the only thing that matters in this world. Nothing else. Like, p- piss everything else away. Everything else is not important. What's important is being a cool bro. That's why Dwayne Johnson is, like, the only person who's, like, really electable in America. I swear to Christ. The fucking I rock. Swear to fucking Christ. <laughs> and that's a nightmare because he's a fucking idiot. I love his IG. professional wrestler. Yeah. He's a professional wrestler. He's not and even a sportsman. In Hollywood, I think. Yeah. He, oh, no way. He's a hustler. He's grinding his ass off and posting his 5 a.m. wake-ups on IG every day, showing us his fucking muscled-up thighs and shit. And, like, he's a fucking good-looking dude. I love his work ethic. He's charismatic. He's a decent actor, I suppose. I appreciate Wouldn't that he's, like, him. very successful. Yeah, he's, he's bigger than me. But... He doesn't know fuck all about politics and he's seriously considering a run for the presidency and there's an actual built in constituency for this motherfucker. And that's what Jake Grumbach is um, talking about. I think it's right. Cool bros. Cool bros win in America. So as a non-Rogan listener, can I just ask the dumb question? I I thought Rogan was like in with the righties and I I did what? He is. Yeah. So how is he pro-Obama? Oh, lots of like lot. Yeah. Part of it is he's like the self gaslighting, unselfconscious. He's, he's not politically sorted. 
S O R T E D. Mm-hmm. Like he doesn't have like a prepackaged idea about like what the answer to everything is. He responds gutturally and he's been conditioned and socialized by a lot of like far right and conspiracy theory nut jobs in his social network. So like he's connected to all the wrong people and he platforms all the wrong people, but he's, he's just like a Bill Maher type kind of like in the Mm nineties, he considered himself a liberal and in the nineties criteria he was right. But a nineties liberal was really kind of like a libertarian and libertarians are actually a version of conservative. And Mm -hmm. so they, they don't care about anything that has to do with like, workers or equality they care about things like extreme free speech rights you know and no taxes so so just to get this right rogan liked obama at the time because of his image and less because of his policies i think so but i don't think he knew obama's policies (laughs) and he did like obama (laughs) and like a lot of far right a lot of maga people had supported obama that was the paradox right I think Rogan, the, the big thing with Rogan is he he's sort of like the political everyman mm-hmm. because I believe his intentions are totally pure. I really do. I don't think he's getting like money from anti-vax crowds or anything. I think he's just platforming things that he believes should be talked about. And what he doesn't realize is the cultural damage he's creating. Yeah, That's what I think that's the problem with Rogan. And he, he just responds to issues as they come. Like he doesn't have a coherent style of argument. He'll mm-hmm. you ask him a question, he'll answer his opinion as like Van said as currently as it comes. Yeah. And he, he doesn't realize the people he's platforming. And that's what mm-hmm. makes it dangerous because he's the political everyman. He doesn't think he's a conservative. He doesn't think he's a liberal. He thinks he's, you know, just just living life. More like actually, he's yeah, platforming really noxious conservative ideas. He's cool meme politics, whatever, whatever sells. Yeah, 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 yeah. He thinks he's doing good faith shit, you know, being the cool bro, and like it's it's just the last person who should have this big of a of a megaphone, you know. And yeah, he's that, definitely not a grifter. Third tweet from Ben and Jerry's ice cream. This is actually a little bit dated by now, but it's still really. <laughs> fucking lightning rod controversial ben and jerry's ice cream says on twitter you cannot simultaneously prevent and prepare for war we call on president biden to de-escalate tensions and work for peace rather than prepare for war sending thousands more u.s troops to europe in response to russia's threats against ukraine only flame fans the flame of war and at the time that they issued this tweet um biden had just literally deployed more troops to europe so like this Sorry, can we confirm they make ice cream right they make fucking yeah. cookie dough ice cream <laughs> yeah that's right um, apparently they also make controversial tweets so uh the the, <laughs> the national security crowd had a field day fucking dunking on this thing and the only thing i'll say quickly is that i am simpatico with the tweet in terms of like where their des- the desire is or the sensibility is you know and there is a way of thinking on the left that i think deserves more attention than it actually gets that says literally that says the cause of world war 3 is the preparation for world war 3 those who tend to prepare for war get it and it's the opposite of like if you want peace prepare for war and that is in fact true often it's just the inverse of how we're trained to think about this. 
So like, I don't want to throw shade at the principle or the sensibility that they're trying to represent, but it's as a technical matter, you can simultaneously prevent and prepare for war. So their assertion on that point is like technically not correct. And then the way that they sort of called on Biden to deescalate tensions makes it sound like it's Biden's fault. And like, that doesn't quite seem right when Putin is the one who has to fucking own this shit show. Like he's the one threatening. He's the one who forward positioned troops. And now he's the one attacking. So like you can't put that on America. You could say like, what are the root causes of this and look to NATO enlargement or something like that. Like that's a reasonable debate, but like escalation of tensions is Putin's fault. And so like this version of left discourse, I think has really good intentions that need to be steered Mm -hmm. just a little bit differently. Yeah. We'll get into this in the next segment too, but you know, another, it's another thing to say, or it's one thing to say, we shouldn't get involved in a major European conflict, right? Like Mm -hmm. you can defend that on legitimate grounds. It's a completely different thing to say, this is, this is the U.S. imperialism that's causing this, this uh, stirring the seeds of conflict and has nothing to do with Putin's own imperial uh, ambitions. Mm, yeah, that's a good point. I don't think that Ben and Jerry's can just add Putin and say the same thing without something seriously fucked up happening in response. At Vlad. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know. Is this just the neoliberal absolute fucking hellscape we're in? Because why is an ice cream... <laughs> making corporate <laughs> entities why well, the fuck is it they, that's, they, that's, the, that's the uninterrogated reality <laughs> so a ben corporate ben entity ben that's formulated an opinion on the ukraine crisis and for some reason they, they, they decided that their opinions fucking valued on this and why do we but care like, why are we talking about it why am i talking yeah. about it? <laughs> like, absolutely but the thing you have to understand about Ben and Jerry's is they do reflect a very Vermont thing. This is a this particular segment within America, mm-hmm. uh, you know, part part libertarian, part progressive. Uh, but if I recall correctly, Ben and Jerry's has a history of social activism, uh, mostly around I think environmental issues um, mm-hmm. and uh, more progressive distribution policies at home. Um, I can't think of anything in particular, but they, they have this sort of hippie vibe that comes that. very much from their state of origin, which is uh, Vermont in uh, sort of mountainous rural northeast of uh, the United States. Uh, so it's not, it wasn't a surprise to me to see this. It's just, they're definitely straying far outside of their domain of uh, and into international relations, which is uh, sort of the deep end of the pool for them. And Gabby, you had a... Uh... A tweet that segues off of this the first this is the first of my tweets actually so this one is from eric gomez his tweet reads i mean yes ice cream tweet dumb but i also think one security dilemmas and spirals of escalation and two seriously contending with the historical legacy of peace through strength especially in relation to u.s soviet nuclear tensions the early 1980s merit deeper examination which is all right yeah. Do you agree yeah. or disagree here, Van? No, definitely. This is like a profound point. We find profound statements on Twitter all the time, I feel like, even though I don't want people <laughs> going on Twitter. Um, and so like, <laughs> this actually, come, the book I have coming out at the end of this year, or maybe early next year, depending on supply chain issues. Um, but the book, there is this core sub argument about the Reagan era. And a lot of people, very few people have made this argument before. But Reagan took a a high-risk, 
high cost strategy approach to Asia, approach to the Soviet Union um, in particular, globally. And it was it was embracing arms racing and brinkmanship. And it did not lead to war. It led to nothing. And then the Cold War ended because of, of globalization and glasnost and perestroika and shit. And so like we got the outcome we wanted, not because we did arms racing and brinkmanship, but arms racing and brinkmanship happened. And then we got the outcome that we wanted. And the lesson that I, what I, what I sort of argue in the book is that like these silly fucks like Matt Kronig and, uh, the older generation above him, Keith Payne and these guys, there's like these neoconservative types who are the Uber Hawks, the John Boltons. They forged a lot of their, their memories of history about what works coming out of this Reagan era. The Republican party deified Reagan for a long time. And so what their lesson learning was about history came out of seeing Hey, we got the outcome we wanted, and what the way we got it was through fucking arms racing and brinkmanship. It was by giving up preventing war and willfully risking war that we got what we wanted. And I think that this is like where so much of the like pathologies and security studies and the like really perverted way that a lot of people think about deterrence and fetishize what is actually in fact militarism. I think a lot of it has grounding in this 1980s period of, of ferment, even more than the old, like post-World War II stuff and Korean war and all that shit. I think it's really the eighties that allowed these motherfuckers to ferment their, their uber hockiness. Um, and Eric kind of gestures at that. Yeah. Yeah. Shout out to Eric Gomez. Yeah, I don't think there's any more to add to that one. Move on to my second tweet of the week, which is from Evan A. Lexmana, a senior research fellow with the Center on Asia and Globalization at the National University of Singapore's Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy. Mm-hmm. In response to a tweet emphasizing that PhD granting departments need experts like in Japan and in South and Southeast Asia, Lexmana tweets, also a puzzle for me. Southeast Asia expertise within U.S. academia has gotten better than 10 years ago. Uh, Example, the Southeast Asia Research Group. And yet, there remains a serious lack of Southeast Asian experts in D.C. slash policymaking circles. Shrug emoji. And still think that's true? Um, I think it it is getting uh, better slowly, but I think it is true. It's not puzzling to me, though. I mean, Hunter is a Southeast Asia expert who came from DC policy, so he might have a better take. <laughs> but my view is like US policymakers generally, the amount of resources and the number of bodies that are sort of covering down on a particular issue, it really is driven by military matters or like geopolitical sort of considerations. And so the big issues that have big military budget line items, North Korea, China, get the lion's share of bodies. And part of this is because like it's the Pentagon that's setting the the tone. Like most of the bodies in DC are tethered in some way to the Pentagon more than they're tethered to the state department. But like that means if, if that's true, this is like my working hypothesis. It means that Southeast Asia is, you almost don't want Southeast Asia to have like good representation 
in expertise in policymaking circles because that would mean that Southeast Asia has become like the object of conflict. It's the source of like military problems and that, that is not what you want. But it's like that's where you see the growth of expertise in particular policy areas. It's like around defense the defense problematique, the defense problems, you know, and Southeast Asia has not really been that for the U.S. for a long time, except on the periphery, you know, like counterterrorism in the Philippines and stuff like that. Yeah, I think Evan raises um, a good point here. I also don't know if I find it puzzling. Policy flows from sort of the military preoccupation of where threats are emanating from. Uh, in that case, or in this case, China makes Southeast Asia more relevant in the minds of US uh, national security folks. I'm puzzled by why we haven't seen any change at all. When I got involved in or interested in Southeast Asia in the first place, uh, over a decade ago, uh, it was very much a niche issue, and it still is. But that's not to say that there's no recognition of its growing importance. You know, if you look at US-China rivalry as sort of the defining prism for national security minds at the moment, uh, Southeast Asia is clearly, I think, the front line of that US-China competition. Um, And so we need better and more people to understand that region on its own merits, not as sort of a sub-region of potential conflict. And I find myself a bit torn here because I simultaneously benefit from there not being a lot of competition or (laughs) Southeast Asian expertise to vie with for job applications. But at the same time, there are not a lot of positions open in the first place when it comes to uh, Southeast Asia experts. You know, I do enjoy the sort of small community of Southeast Asia experts. I feel like everybody sort of knows each other. Mm -hmm. And that's a nice thing. It's probably a little bit different if you're a China expert or a Middle East expert, for instance. But I I do sort of find myself thinking at some point that's got to change. Um, If the Indo-Pacific is really the priority theater for Washington, why don't we have more funding? (laughs) Sorry, Asia Pacific. why don't we have more funding for Southeast Asia jobs? Um, you know, there's still few and far between. When I was at Brookings, for instance, there's one senior fellow who works on Southeast Asia. Uh, there are a smattering for East Asia and have individual country experts. Um, and that's true of most think tanks across Washington. I would say that CSIS had a bit of an exceptional community around Southeast Asia for a time. I think that's sort of shrunk since. Uh, but for a while, Ernie Bauer, who, who was a bit of an entrepreneur, created this community in CSIS uh, with, with a good team of Southeast Asia experts. Um, but it's really a rare exception. And, and I think Evan's point is that this hasn't changed despite the rise of academic interest. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess, if anything, that just shows that there isn't a major connection between the academia and uh, policy expertise. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, basically, I I would say that the amount of Southeast Asia expertise in policy circles is proportional to policymakers' interests in Southeast Asia. But good insight. If I can can speak to sort of like contrasting to what Hunter said, sort Mm -hmm. of from the graduate experience or the soon-to-be graduate experience, Mm -hmm. if you're wanting, if it feels like if we're wanting to get into Southeast Asia expertise or anywhere in Asia, it's very limited to do it unless you're willing to go on a pro-China route because there's a lot of money in that. Unfortunately, for recent graduates, if you wanted to go, say, work for some Chinese 
Chinese companies in China, they are looking for graduates at the moment. Oh, and for like New Zealanders, yeah. Really, for Americans, yeah. it's kind and of the opposite. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, definitely for New Zealanders and maybe others, it just that's not where we want the brains going, right? We mm. want to. Why? Why won't we fund it ourselves to get these minds here? Yeah. Instead of <laughs> everywhere else. Yeah, unfortunately, there are still um, groups like CREG, which I think operates out of Duke slash Cornell, perhaps, but I think Duke University. And the Henry Luce Foundation, which uh, has consistently funded Southeast Asia research for decades. Um, mm. But, you know, it, it still doesn't really stack up uh, against the uh, amount of funding that there is for, say, Japan expertise or um, individual mm. countries outside of Southeast Asia. That's the other thing is like Japan, some extent Korea, for sure, China, Taiwan, the fucking Swedes. I mean, like there's a number of countries where there's like American policy expertise there because those countries fucking bankroll it. They provide networking opportunities and jobs, career ladders to be specialists as a Japan hand or something to fund a Japan chair at a think tank and that kind of thing. There's way less money in Southeast Asia for that kind of shit. You know, Singapore may be like the one exception. You don't get, the, yes, you don't get the foreign money the way you do with the other countries. All right, time for Armchair Analysis, where we look at a different article each week. Uh, For this week's Armchair Analysis, we've selected an article by Terrell Germain Starr in Foreign Policy titled, Why Progressives Should Help Defend Ukraine. Uh, Terrell is the host of the podcast Black Diplomats and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. I'll say off the bat, I I really enjoyed this article. Uh, I think it tackles a major and interesting debate and a conundrum for progressives right now. It dives right into sort of classic IR debates of sticks versus carrots, uh, or more of a foreign policy debate, I suppose. Mm. Um, He says, at this point, it is clear that Putin is getting fat off the West's diplomatic carrots and needs a few whacks of the stick, none of which includes sending US troops to do the whacking. So what he's really doing is taking to task sort of the progressive camp that has been staunchly opposed to any military deterrent or the use of military, uh, U.S. military action to deter Russia's aggression in Ukraine Mm -hmm. and sort of this false moral equivalency between Russian and U.S. empires. Uh, And he he particularly takes Bernie Sanders to account uh, and other progressive representatives in Congress for taking more or less taking Russia aside or advocating against the use of sanctions um, and worse advocating for sanctions versus Israel, for instance, for its occupation of uh, Palestine, but not Russia and Putin, um, which he says is morally inconsistent. I, I agree. As an extra point, he writes that progressives need to learn the difference between sweeping sanctions and more modern Magnitsky Act sanctions, which are able to target specific elites and institutions due to human rights abuses, um, which is an important debate I think we've touched on before on this podcast. And so specifically, he argues for arming Ukraine to help prevent loss of life, which is, uh, I think, right on moral grounds, but I'm not sure exactly that he's really backed up this argument. because it's, it's unclear to me exactly how arming Ukrainians uh, leads directly to less loss of life. If anything, you know, perhaps it would deter Russia, but it could increase casualties. So I, I think there's uh, a bit of room for debate there. I'm not saying it's the wrong uh, course of action. Um, in fact, I agree, but I think he needs to provide uh, a bit more rationale there. Yeah. I, uh, so it was a good piece. I didn't, I, 
I agreed with some of the critique. I don't agree with the recommendation uh, of arming Russia, but I don't, I don't disagree. Arming just, Ukraine. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> so I'm just not sold either way. I, I recognize that there's like, you know, moral dilemmas and tensions here, and the strategic question is part of like it's entwined with that. The problem I have with this is like once again. You have somebody um, who represents or claims to be on the left or who claims to be a progressive, but represents only one version of what that even means, right? And yep. uses their argument to delegitimize other versions of what that means. I don't know if I've expressed this clearly enough in the past, but like that's really one of the problems I have with people making progressive arguments is that like there isn't a singular progressive position or a singular progressive grand strategy or a progressive statecraft. There is like mm -hmm. progressive principles. And some of those principles, as all principles do when you apply them to the real world, they are they have tensions with within themselves. They're, they they rise they run up into contradictions, right? Instead of acknowledging those tensions and contradictions, the normal move, which is what uh, this guy also does, in and like I'll be clear, like I do like the piece. I just don't agree with all of it, is to kind of act like, well, my version of progressivism is legitimate and yours is not. And that's easier to do, I guess, which is why people do it. But it's just it's bullshit and it's not intellectually transparent enough the israel bringing in the israel palestine comparison is precisely the point the left and bernie like bernie is opposed to bds movement he signed a letter opposing bds against israel he's just critical of israel and thinks we ought to be cutting off military assistance to israel because they have nukes in a region where no one else has nukes they're militarily superior to everyone and we shouldn't be feeding um militarism to a country that's already militarist in when they are the geopolitical oppressors in their own territory, right? It doesn't mean they're not under attack, but it's like that is the valid view of reality that, that Bernie is channeling, that BDS and the Justice Democrats are channeling, and that's why they side with Palestine, the oppressed, against the oppressor, Israel. That does it. That's not the same thing as like, you know, accepting terrorism or whatever against Israel. But you have to look at a situation of oppressor and oppressed and take the, the proper side. And Bernie issued a statement on uh, Russia that I thought was quite good in contrast to the Democratic Socialists of America, DSA, who issued a, a terrible America blaming statement. Bernie didn't blame America. Not the statement that I saw. What Bernie doesn't want and where I think the piece has validity is on this notion of broad sanctions, right? Like comprehensive sanctions that end up hurting individual innocent people is problematic and is not strategically effective. And that's what Bernie is opposed to. And this piece is arguing for like the Magnitsky style sanctions that are tailored against particular oligarchs and particular interests, particular elites. That we don't know if it's more effective or not. The jury's out, but that is more justifiable. And it's like completely consistent with progressive principles to make this kind of argument that this dude is making. Like, I think he's on valid grounds to make his case, but I don't think he's on valid grounds to invalidate the alternative progressive views. What I do think, what I love about the piece or that I think is like the most correct thing imaginable is that the people who are opposed to sanctioning Putin or intervening on Ukraine's behalf in any way, 
those people are, they hold up the banner of anti-imperialism, but they use it to target the American imperialism and not the imperialism of others. And so it's this hypocrisy, the hypocrisy of campism, you know, um, that's at play. And I think that it's valid to sort of like recognize when that's happening and try and guard against it. Um, so I thought that was uh, quite good. But yeah, like this, this is one of the reasons I liked this piece was because uh, this has not been these internal debates within the left have like not really been part of the conversation on the Russia stuff nearly as much as they, they could be. And I thought this was like a really thoughtful way of, of addressing some of that. All right, time for Ask Me Anything, where people ask me anything. So for Ask Me Anything this week, my, the first question I have is from Dave Texaria, or Texaria, and he asks, to what extent is North Korea's nuclear deterrent directed against countries other than the United States? And how could this be accounted for in a Korean arms control regime? Hmm. Good question. The short answer is we don't know. North Korea's what's what's true is that North Korea's motivations for like the origins of the bomb for them, it's definitely U.S. driven. There's just not any debate about that. Like it's guarding against the threat that they experienced during the Korean War, where America made nuclear threats that North Korea could not answer. And having no answer to that and being vulnerable to that is a logical reason to seek nukes and then in and since the 50s it's sought nukes um and then it really started accelerating that in the 80s as its uh geopolitical allies started peeling off and it started becoming isolated and the balance of four south korean military just grew and grew and modernized and modernized and so like the military balance was becoming less and less favorable to north korea and it got to the point by the early 90s where like north korea had nothing to offer in a war fight except for like long range artillery attacks on Seoul, which is obviously like not nothing. That's a pretty big fucking deterrent, um, but they wanted more and they wanted to like, you want the fungibility to like do other shit with your military um, and like options that is that having nukes allows you to do. So the nukes were all about America, but it doesn't mean it will always be about America. At this point, they're a prestige weapon. They're part of like the ongoing narrative of the Kim regime itself in North Korea that like nukes are essential. And then on top of that, China has always kind of been like the far enemy for the Korean people. And to some extent that applies to North Korea too. And there is alternative futures where China is a giant threat on North Korea's border to North Korea and or to a unified Korea even. If you don't have nukes, you're going to be very vulnerable to predation and conquest and all of that. And so nukes is a long-term hedge against that. And I don't know that you can account for that in like an arms control process with North Korea, but it does guarantee that the nukes are not going away. Maybe you can get reductions, but not elimination. Our second question is from Benjamin Young. Is it useful to use IR theory to predict real world, world situations, such as Russia's, in quotation marks, I'm putting this, potential invasion of Ukraine? Or is IR theory just an academic thought exercise to talk about liberalism, realism, and constructivism? Depends on how seriously you take the predictions. If, you're, if it's just with a grain of salt or with the 
the for the sake of exploring alternative futures, like potential uh, eventualities. IR theory using IR theories in that way can be quite useful um, when you're trying to make decisions and you need to to weigh costs and benefits and risks, and you need to frame up what your options are. Theories of international relations can be very useful. I've talked to before about how like I've done that in the Pentagon. I've done that in some of my op-eds even. And so like there's a way in which IR theory works to help make sense of things, but you can have no real valid claim to truth with them. It's only about like, do you accept the premises and the terms that this particular theory offers the situation? If you take more of a grain of salt view, like arguing about what Dan Nexon actually had a great tweet about this from Georgetown where he was like, you know, IR scholars, when they talk to each other are all about like, we have to reject monocausal analysis, monocausal thinking, identifying like the single thing that helps explain a situation. That's not realistic. We know the world is more complex than that. That's what IR scholars say to each other. But then what they say on fucking Twitter to the public is like, Oh yeah, here's what's going on. It's this one factor. It's this one thing. It's NATO enlargement or it's the security dilemma or it's appeasement or whatever. You know, like it's one thing that explains everything whenever we're doing public facing shit, but that's not how we actually do our own research and converse with each other, which is kind of like hypocritical. And I thought it was funny that he highlighted that, but that's kind of where my head is. It's, it's useful to help make sense of things. It's not useful to make predictions unless you treat the predictions as kind of unserious, you know. Our third question is from PT. Could you discuss the risk of nuclear war breaking out between two states with nuclear arsenals when conventional kinetic warfare occurs between the two states first, but contested on a third party soil, e.g. if the US deployed forces to Ukraine or Taiwan with Russia and China respectively engaging American forces in those regions? Convoluted question. It's too context rich, too context contingent to say how this would work. And to I think it's too context contingent to even lump the Russia and China situation in together. Like I think the reaction, if we did the same thing in both instances, the reaction from the other side might well be different. So there was this uh, journal article a couple years ago by Mark Bell and Julia McDonald about types of nuclear crises. And the conceit of it was that all nuke, all nuke crises are not created equally. Like some are more combustible than others or more stable than others or more unstable than others. And it depends on uh, certain certain factors that you look for or find in the local situation. In the case of like uh, China and Russia, there is a secure second strike capability in both instances that does reinforce deterrence. There should be mutual deterrence there, right? And they're not fighting over their own territory, but over a third territory that they narrate as belonging to them or whatever. But like in actual fact, it's it's obviously contested. The war fighting is going on not on your or their terrain, but on some other terrain. So all of these things create like fire breaks that should in theory mean that there is no nuclear war. Like there should be room in theory to fight conventionally without having escalation of nuclear war. The problem is we're talking about 
marginal increases in the risk of nuclear war, what's the acceptable level there? Clearly, when you're in a conventional war fight, the risk of nuclear war goes up if you both have nukes, right? That's something that everybody who's involved in the decisions ought to be worried about. And as, uh, you know, onlooking civilians, the world ought to be worried about that, right? And like, we can say analytically that it's really low odds, 1% chance. Oh, and then you were in a war fighting situation, it goes up to a 2% chance of nuclear war. Is that really acceptable? Like, what, what kind of fucking demented fuck wants to increase the possibility of nuclear war, right? You're playing with risk and you don't have a right to play with everyone else's souls, man. And so like, but that's where, that's where like coercion theory uh, in certain versions of it would lead us because we should, it, it would give us the false comfort of like, well, there's not going to be nuclear escalation here. But well, you don't fucking know that, dude. The situation is too complex. So like my analytical response is that risks of nuclear war with China and Russia at present are probably like more stable than with a situation like North Korea or Pakistan. But I, I wouldn't hang my hat on that. That's not a, I wouldn't feel comfortable with that. And it would be an ongoing concern of mine if I was making decisions on Russia or China policy. Like I would be thinking about this and trying to buy down, not increase risks of nuclear war. The next question is from Anonymous. You mentioned on Twitter that your views on China have evolved over time. Can you talk about that? Is the Hawks-Dove distinction useful for you in ge- or in general? Yeah, so I don't, we're, we're like so long on this podcast, I can't do full justice to this question. But the short version is that the way I size up China, like the what I, what I think of the CCP, it has not really changed. But how important, like I still have a pretty fucking grim view of the CCP. And I, I think China is like a net malign actor on in Asia anyway, um, on balance. But a couple things have changed. One is that like, I recognize that some of that bad guy energy is in response to us. So like, we don't dictate what China does, but China does what does respond to what we do. And so it's not about apportioning blame, but we have to recognize when our own actions make bad Chinese decisions more likely, right? And we should account for that. And we don't. We never do. We never fucking think about that shit anymore. We like cut ourselves off from any culpability in the enemy's decision making, you know? But the other thing that's really changed is I'm like very sensitive to what I started seeing around late 2018, 2019, where even Democrats were starting to argue very publicly, including Kurt Campbell, that rivalry with China was the ticket to American renewal, that democracy would be refreshed. We'd be, we would build back better by competing with China. And that reflects all of the wrong readings of Cold War history. That's like the Hal Brand's theory of Cold War history, which is conservative and reactionary and bunk um, and extremely blinkered, extremely blinkered about McCarthyism and the Red Scare and how progressive reforms got 
cut off and narrowed and feminism and civil rights got delayed by 20 years. Oh man, there's so much to say about this that I don't have time to right now, but like that the reading of history that says Cold War could be good for American democracy is an incorrect reading of history. Point fucking blank. It doesn't mean that there wouldn't be some upsides like money for universities or something, but it's a it's it's a it's rivalry is a threat to democracy is the like very simple way to put it. And so I'm on guard for like anybody who thinks that it's like the path to renewal. I think that's fucked up. But then on top of that, starting in 2019, we started seeing the rise in anti-Asian violence. As a result, I saw it like when I, I don't listen to Rogan's podcast anymore, but at the time when I was listening to it, I heard people on his show go from thinking like China was a benign actor that we need to trade with to like, we got to get that money. You know, China is just another corporate actor or whatever, and neoliberalism shifting from that kind of neutralish view to China is an enemy of civilization. And like I watched that change start happening more and more and more. I watched people like Bannon trying to stoke that. And then in 2020, I watched how that metastasized into the Senate, the GOP using China as the boogeyman, as the threat to justify winning elections. And they were literally saying, don't defend Trump if you want to get reelected, because Trump was for shit, obviously. They were like, accept Trump and accept him by attacking China and then by politicizing this the way Scott Morrison and Peter Dutton did in Australia. And that is also a path to ruin and a path to ending democracy, but in a very fascisty way. And so like that's super dangerous too. So um, that's how that's, those are shifts. I want to have like a responsible voice in the discourse and like steer us, be, be a, a conscience on some level. Um, and the weight of, of opinion was too far toward reflexive knee jerk rivalry. And like it was, it already it was doing damage to the Republic. And so it needed to shift. And so like I've shifted along with that, but yeah, like I still have a, a pretty um, pessimistic and skeptical view of China in general or of the regime anyway. Our final question is from Dylan Maynard. What are your thoughts on the growing number of PLA air force flights into Taiwan's ADIZ? Do you think that there are major cause for concern or somewhat overhyped? Yeah, uh, so PLA Air Force has been flying into Taiwan's air defense identification zone extends basically all the way to the the Chinese coast. So like the PLA Air Force is being antagonistic of Taiwan, but it also is like kind of a low bar. Like it's not hard to to, uh, violate Taiwan's ages. So they've been increasing the frequency of this you know, spooking Taiwan's radars or whatever. And for a long time, Taiwan was having to scramble fighter aircrafts to like meet these challenges. Because like if you see uh, another country's fighters flying into your air defense identification zone, which is like your buffer for security, you have to challenge their entry or like ask them, tell them to ask for permission or engage them in like, a you know, identify as friend or foe and like that kind of stuff, direct them to leave. And so you have to 
do that, but it was happening with such a frequency that it was like burning down the readiness of Taiwan's air force. It was also clear that this was not a prelude to an invasion. You know, if you're China, you're not going to invade by first flying lots of uh, flights into the enemy's ADIS to let them know that you're coming. Like that's nonsensical. And um, you might do this in the run up to an invasion, but you would have to see like invasion level forces also mobilizing. You wouldn't just have a few flighters, fighters scrambling every day. That's like fucking nonsense. So the concern about the PLA um, overflights against Taiwan is not, it's way overblown in the immediate sense of like risks of war. It's not a, it's not an indicator of war. It does introduce opportunities for mistakes, just like every military interaction does, right? Accidents, you know, misperceptions and that kind of thing. That's, it's a small risk, but it's like, do you want to play with that risk or not? You know, and all things being equal, you should not want to play with that risk. But then like the, the main thing is China is kind of showing that it, it can do this and it forces Taiwan into the position of needing to respond or not respond, needing to dis- let China do this with impunity or continue scrambling Taiwan fighters constantly and reacting to what your enemy is doing kind of thing. So I'm not worried about this, but it's just, it's one of those many things that kind of increases the marginal risks of, of conflict. It's certainly not like a, a positive thing. You know, uh, it doesn't speak well to like regional stability in Asia, but you know, like, what are you going to do? Like if China wants to do this, it can, and it's almost impossible to stop it unless you foreclose on rivalry. You change the valence of the relationship with China. This kind of stuff goes away, you know, but that's not happening anytime soon. So (laughs) this is what we got. It's a good episode. All right, gang, that's going to do it. Buymeacoffee.com slash undiplomatic to buy us coffees. Um, what's the other thing? Cotton Bureau. Cottonbureau.com. Search undiplomatic to get the merch. Rate us on iTunes or wherever you're listening. Catch you next time. Peace.